Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sovereign Sportsman Solutions. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource, so check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get the industry insights, news, and content that can keep you up to date on the tech that helps drive conservation into the future. A Game Warden's children's book, titled A Cowboy in the Woods, is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood. While trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences, growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people, like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. 
With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 67, interview with Colonel Kevin Jordan regarding August 19th and the response after I was shot. Morning, Colonel. Thank you again for joining uh, us. Um, Good to have you on, Kevin. How are you? Thanks, John. Good. How are you? Good. Good. Yeah, it's a, we've been, you know, diving into August 19th and my, my shooting. I get a lot of requests, Colonel, um, from officers around the country because I sometimes refer to it. So they, they, they asked if I, I do this. And I think I had it in mind to do it long before because we did this interview actually two years ago. So I wanted to freshen it up with a, something from you because I know, uh, yeah, it's both near and dear to our hearts. We lost uh, very good friends that day. And, you know, I... As much as I don't want to talk about it, I do want to talk about it. I don't want to forget those right. guys and their sacrifice for sure. Right. And I know you have a very right. similar feeling. Um, but, you know, the things that happened after the fact, the fishing game response was massive. Uh, certainly I wasn't there, but talking to, you know, Richard Carey in his book, I always, it's a whole different angle looking at what people were seeing other than me. I know my story but all the other ones surrounding it are so, you know, close to their hearts and the response after. And I know for all the officers from New Hampshire fishing in that responded that day, it's, it's, you know, takes, takes, it takes them back too. well, for four of us, it went on literally all day. So it yeah. started at like one o'clock and we weren't, we were still into it until six 30 that night before it ended. So that was looking back on that and thinking about it and looking at other shootings, uh, that have occurred, you know, normally it's a quick thing. You're in and out of it, hopefully, um, you know, no, no less traumatic, but it's different. I think when it goes for that length of time and you have time to, you literally, I mean, you're walking, I'm walking through, we're walking through the woods armed, knowing that we're going to have to kill this guy wondering is Wayne alive? 
Did he survive that gunshot? Uh, we know we lost, you know, Trooper Phillips. We know we lost Scotty. We lost Les. We lost the judge. So we're going to lose Wayne now. And, and you know, it's all of those uh, added uh, stressors uh, when you're going into the most volatile situation you're probably ever going to go into that just, it was just six hours of absolute high stress. And uh, yeah. I tell you from even, and I have very vivid memories today of what it does to you emotionally and physically. You know, it's amazing how your body reacts to that kind of a stress load for that length of time. It takes days, weeks to recover from that. I just never felt so tired. I've never been so sick. I've never been, never had such a pounding headache, you know, all, all of those things. And, uh, and you know, it was, I, I don't know how to accurately, I told Jim this when he did his book, Jim Carrey, I don't know how accurately to describe it, but it is a bizarre uh, set of experiences for sure. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, I remember at the end, we talked about it, you had been shot and taken out of that thing. So you didn't, I don't think you knew when you went to the hospital that other people had been killed. I don't think any of that information was available to you. So that must've been, you know, kind of a shock to you too, to find out. I mean, we had that, we had the knowledge of that as we went through it, but you were in, and then you were in a helicopter flying out of there. So, you know, you didn't have that information until much later. So it was kind of surprising to us. And you're right. Everybody lived different experiences. Um, you know, some people were angry, still angry today. There's some people that were, were incredibly sorry and, and sad about, you know, you just had all of those emotions coming in and all different reasons. I, I you just don't realize it until you talk to the various people in their roles of, of what, what they did and how they did it. Um, you know, and hopefully there are few with regrets. There's always people with regrets in those things. The only regret we have is we didn't get into it sooner. And we didn't have more information at a quicker pace, but it, it would take years for us to figure out why that happened. But once we found it out, it kind of made sense. It just took years to find it out. So, so there, there was a lot there that um, just never will go away. You know, you'll, you'll think of it every August. So mm. no, no, no doubt. I certainly, uh, yeah, think about it every August for sure. And that's why, you know, we, we talked to Paula Booth. The next episode after this is uh, our, my counselor, and she actually heads the counseling, Paula Booth. So that's something to look forward to. But I asked her about, you know, should I do this in August? Is that in poor taste? And she said no. She's because everybody, no. it is on their minds. And, right. you know, by bringing it to the forefront, you know, bringing this whole aspect in, um, you, you help healing and you help people get those feelings out again to, to promote healing for sure. Yeah. And I think it's important, quite frankly, I want people to remember it. You know, I want people to remember the sacrifices made that day, the courage that was the most, um, it it will always be the most amazing thing in my mind. The, the, The greatest thing I took from that is I saw, and I've told you this before, but I saw police officers that I had always looked up to and admired for many years and they were all there. And, and you saw how uh, police react to this. And you can't train them. <laughs> right. You can train guys to shoot accurately. You can train guys to clear a holster. You can train guys to, to be a good shot and to do all the tactical things. But let me just tell you, if they don't have it in their heart to run headlong into a situation like that, that you just wasted a lot of money on training because you can't train courage. You can't train, you can't train commitment. You can't train friendship and loyalty and what that all means. And that's what drove guys like us that day. You know, we, it would have been very easy to stand on 102 and not go down in the woods. There were plenty of guys around. You could have faded into the, 
into the woodwork up there and nobody would have said anything. There were, there were quite frankly, there were guys who did that, but then there was a handful of us that were not going to do that. And, and I'm proud of that, you know, and the other thing I've, I've told you a hundred times, and I know you, you have it too. I also take great comfort in still doing this job today, carrying a gun and going out the door every day, because I know what I'm going to do. If right. I get, you know, we think about it in the academy. They tell you in the academy and all your training, you know, you've got to be good with this. You've got to understand that you may have to take a life one day and, and, you know, someone could shoot at you. Well, we've lived that. I know what that's not that I'm an expert at it, but it's not going to shock me uh, because I've been there and I know how I reacted the first time. And I have no reason to believe I won't do the same again. So quite frankly, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. I, I'm, there's no doubt in my mind what I'm going to do. And I take great comfort. in it. So that's about the only good thing I can say about that day. And other than everything he tried to do failed miserably. Um, and the anniversary of this is a good sign of that. You know, his efforts that day were to, was to, um, you know, break this group up and, and destroy people and, and have them never be the same again. And he did not even come close to accomplishing that. If anything, he pulled people closer, agencies closer, and it still continues decades later. So I take great delight in that, quite frankly, that he failed miserably at that, along with a lot of other things he failed miserably at. <laughs> yeah, Kevin, that's uh, that's spot on. And we always try to look at the positives in a critical incident. And I mean, there are a lot of bad things happen. I mean, I almost lost uh, you know our good friend and partner here, Wayne, and we did have some deaths, obviously, but which is yeah. just horrible. But there were so many positives that you just, uh, you know, you just brought to light and that selfless sacrifice of the officers on the front line that were brothers and sisters in this community, especially in the small town communities, like we all come from, from the fish and wildlife side. I mean, it's inspiring. And, you know, um, talking about this and dropping this story on the anniversary of that is going to give other officers hope. It's going to give other people listening uh, that if another mass shooting does happen in their community, Hey, there are people that aren't going to just hide and protect themselves, you know, and kind of not do that sheepdog mentality. They will run to the bullets if they have to. And that's how uh, thankfully a lot of us are geared and wired. And uh, you guys saved a lot of lives that day by doing just that. So as you said, Drega did not destroy nearly as many people as he would have wanted to. And he actually unified everybody. And that's, uh, that comes out of a lot of these incidences. We saw the same thing on our, you know, several OIS, um, you know, shooting incidents in the West coast and agencies that hadn't worked together suddenly had a, a respect and a, and an empathy and a, uh, you know, just an admiration for game wardens that were out there doing frontline stuff and jumping right in city cops, you know, yeah. running through the dense woods, ill-equipped without, you know, outdoor kits and canines that don't normally work in the woods and living yeah. out there for three, four days with us, man. And uh, it's, yeah. it's just inspiring and you hit it on the head and that's exactly what, what this story is and why it needs to be told, I think. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think, especially in today's world, that's, I think people lose sight of the fact that that happens. They focus on the bad things and stuff that you see on channel, you know, the, the, the uh, evening news, but they forget the fact that there are guys out there, guys and gals out there who will do exactly what they should do and what most others won't when the time comes and when it's needed most. And they, we've proven that time and time again. And that's, I, I hope this will help, you know, people who are listening to it. Remember that, um, you know, while there are, you know, everybody has bad days. Everybody makes big mistakes. But I'll tell you what, when when push comes to shove and people are going to die if you don't take action, there are people out there that will take action. The other the other big lesson that I that always has made me a little nervous is another another important fact I want to tell the police officers and the game ones that are listening to this. The one guy that this murderer liked 
there was only one uniformed officer that he liked, and his name was Trooper Scott Phillips. Scott could get this guy to do what he needed to do when we had problems with him earlier, and he was the first guy that this murderer killed. Mm. And I, that's important. You know, I've heard, I heard it the other day in a group. We were, there was a bunch of us together, and I heard a young officer say, you know, I don't have any issues with this guy. He'll do whatever I tell him. And I got to tell you, I grabbed him and pulled him aside, and I said, you know, I heard that too. And then I watched, I watched this kid get killed by that very guy. So don't don't fall for that. You know, be on your toes, be alert, be careful. Don't don't get filled with empathy because you think this guy likes you because he likes Scott. And that was the first fire, the first shots he fired. So um, I think that's an important training piece that comes out of that. Um, and any other training piece that comes out of that is that's a horrible time to figure out the tactics of another agency. You don't want to be in a situation the first time you work with another agency. If you get an idea to do it, join them before that. So you have an idea of what the guys, uh, the troopers can do, what their resources are. They know what you can do. We, we have, we've come a long ways in that regard. And, and there is no doubt, you know, the, the only, those guys checks are being signed by somebody else and their uniforms a little bit different, but other than that, they're exactly the same. There is no difference. They, they're trained to the same level. We're, we all have the same goals. We all have families. We all have the same, we share a lot of the same interests. And, and in a situation like that, we're all going to pull in the same direction. But do it, try to do it as much as you can, even if you have to force yourself onto another agency. Do it a little in advance before that day comes. It's just, it puts your mind at ease when you look around and you're going into a situation like that and you know everybody that's going with you. You know that these guys are going to shoot when the time comes and you know they're going to be there for you to cover your back because you, you know these guys. You have a history with them. I wouldn't want to have done that with strangers. Uh, that would have made me feel a little uncomfortable. So it was good to know that. So don't wait for this. Do it ahead of time. Yeah, great point. Well, no doubt. So, And, you know, to wrap my head around this, there's so much to it, Colonel. Uh, just to do these four episodes, sometimes I don't think it does it justice, but to focus on what I know personally and what is game ward affiliated seem to fit better with Warden's Watch and to end it with somebody that can offer counseling to offer help. I just, that's the way John and I wanted to go about it as we discussed it, because there was just, you could go on and on and on podcasting about this event. There was so many layers to it, Um, but that's where we chose to focus uh, that maybe help somebody else in the long run for sure. Sure. And there's little things you can do that you don't even think about. You know, I remember, I remember talking about this a lot cause it, it ended up, it wasn't a big deal, but it ended up being a very big deal. And that was Wayne wanting to come home, John, for the, for the funerals. These were, right. he's in Dartmouth down in the lower part of the state, New Hampshire. And he wanted to come home for this funeral, even though the doctors didn't want him to him. And I can tell you his mother certainly didn't want him to. Um, and they were going to send, they being my, my administrative staff at the time, I was just, we were just officers in the field. They were going to send someone that was close by, which made sense to pick him up. And we were having none of that. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody from another district is going to go get him and bring him back into district one. Yeah, I was going to do that. And we, we, Wayne didn't even know that until later, but we pushed back. We had quite a battle over that. And, and I got, I probably that's probably the closest I ever came to disobeying direct orders. But I basically said, I'm going to get him and I'm bringing him back here for that funeral. And I don't care what you guys want. That's what we're going to do. He's coming back in a district one cruiser with a district one officer. And that's what we did. And we signed him on when we hit the uh, New Hampshire border. Nice. 
coming up. Yeah, we signed him on. And then from there all the way to Cobra, which would have been probably a 30-minute ride, officers came on the air to wish him well. It was pretty amazing. The mistake we made, mm. I don't think we ever, I don't think anyone ever recorded it. It would have been something to have that recorded. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that spoke volumes about how he failed at what he tried to do that day. That, that was when I was convinced, you know, that, that was a miserable failure on your part, pal, because this is just the opposite. It was a closer bunch than ever. So, yeah. But I think the counseling, I'm all about that too, Wayne, as you know, because in the old days, we didn't do that. We sucked it up. And we went back to work. And that was just ludicrous to think that people, right. because they can't, you can't, you can't put a diver down like we just did last week, pulling up skeletal remains out of a car. And not expect that that's going to get out. That's going to bother. If you think that, then you you really need to go back and do some training because you're going to lose your officers. You've got a lot of money invested in these people. Plus, they're good people. They're family. And you can't you can't ignore that. Don't I I push into it all the time. I mean, you know, I if nothing else, I'm going to let them know that I understand it and that we care about it and that we're here if they need it. We have resources for it. And I have officers call. You know, we've, we've made some calls to Paula. She does an outstanding job about hooking people up quietly. Uh, and she's done it for me a couple of times. And that's since then or more than that. And uh, she's been super about it. But guy, administration, administrators listen to this thing. If you don't take anything else away from this, take care of your people. Because the, the one thing you want to remember is these people that go in there are top-notch people. You don't want to lose those people. Those are not the people you want to see quit. <laughs> So the least you can do is make sure that they're cared for afterwards. And part of that is this counseling thing is nothing wrong with that. Nothing. And uh, if you don't do it, it's, it would bother me. I'd be very nervous about an officer who didn't recognize that, admit it and address it. I'd be very nervous about that. Yeah, for sure. Well, Colonel, thank you very much for joining us for the lead into your podcast that we recorded two years ago. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so timely. timely. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is Warden's Watch episode 67, interview with Colonel Jordan regarding August 19th, 1997. And that day started, well, not the day started, but the incident started at your house for me. It did, yeah. We were, I was off, and I just got a new cruiser. I was parked in the dooryard, and you stopped in. You were brand new. You hadn't been on very long. Just coming back from the office that day. Had been working for the fair was coming up. And, yeah, uh, that's right. We're getting ready for Langston Fair. Did a nice poster. Everybody laid out. Yeah. So uh, back yeah. in those days, we did everything by hand. So I had all my stuff out there for the display. And it was hot. We had the windows down in the cruisers and we were sitting out on the deck so we could hear the radio. That's what started it. And, right. And uh, we heard that first call. That And Canada was having a field day that day. So yeah. For those that don't know, uh, certain states or provinces, we have field days, which means game wardens gather. We do game warden games. Um, we have a good time. We get together, but we also uh, exchange information. And, right. and so it, it's a pretty pretty neat thing. Quebec was doing a field day, so that timed in there too. It's kind of like a, a vortex that day, so, yep. especially for game wardens because we had a lot of game wardens traveling through our country. So yep. Yeah, as a matter of fact, John and John Wimsat and Jim Nealon stopped in on their way up to that, I remember to the field days remember that yes i do well i i don't because yeah actually i do because yeah, i was there. there yeah 
And I, I left and they were still there because I wanted to, to get up to this incident because right. we, we heard the, the radio go off. Right. And, uh, that the cruiser had been stolen. They'd stolen uh, Les Lord's cruiser and was headed south. And we were laughing about it, thinking it was kids, remember? Yes. We didn't know at the time that already there had been four people murdered up there. They didn't put that out on, on the air, which in hindsight was viewed as a mistake, I guess. But I understand how they did it once I knew the whole story. Right. And I, and I hope we corrected that because I think sometimes it's better to know. And I know why they did it. They didn't want to know, let him know because he had a cruiser, he had a radio. Right, right. But that, in hindsight, I think uh, I would crazy. have rather known. Oh, yeah, that know? was crazy. We would have attacked that in a whole, whole different, different manner yeah. than the way we did it because yeah, you, we had no idea. No idea. In fact, we thought it was, you were laughing. I remember it like it was yesterday. You were laughing. We thought it was a kid that had taken it taken from the court. Taken for a joyride. Yeah. So. And, uh, and you, were, you, were, you went screaming off to do that. And we listened. I was nervous because at the end of that, before you left the driveway, they changed the cruiser to Scott Phillips. And I remember to this day that that changed the whole scenario for me because Scott was pretty squared away. Yeah. They wouldn't have gotten his cruiser. So right. I said, you know, be really careful. This isn't a pursuit vehicle. You were laughing. You said, I'm going to get his cruiser back. He'll he'll owe me for the rest of his career. Yeah. And, and uh, we had no idea what we were headed for. Absolutely. Yeah. So and then driving up there, you know, I got up there and saw that, that cruiser start crossing to – you know, Vermont, Yeah, you know, and yep. that, that started the whole incident for me. Back then, uh, radios weren't working like they do today. <laughs> yeah, well, you know? and I don't know that, they've, <laughs> I don't know that they, they've made a lot of efforts to improve them because of the radio failures that day, but I'm not sure we got there. So, And, you know, in an incident like that, when you've got, when it's, and it's so, it's so rare to have an incident that had five different crime scenes because he was just rolling around killing people. Um, you know, you've got so many units trying to get on the air to figure out what's happening and try to get organized, which took the better part of the afternoon to finally get some organization in it. And really to the point where we're even looking effectively for him at long after you had been shot, wounded. And, uh, you know, it was two or three hours into this before that started to happen. So it was just bizarre. Everybody was, on, I mean, I gave up using the radio. You couldn't get on the air. And mm. again, tact, looking at it from a tact standpoint that was very dangerous you know yeah. people were just babbling away because you could have rolled into them at any time you didn't you didn't have the benefit of of everyone's knowledge there right so we were running in i was running into troopers on the road and we were updating each other what we knew sharing what i knew he'd share what he knew and uh at the end of the day it put us down we got it we found him and yeah. it put us there but you know, and I don't even know if we've really ever talked to us. I'm thinking about this. You know, I know what happened with me, but yeah, from it went on long that, after you. I, I know, yeah. but um, if you could go back to from the point you left your your yeah. house when things got a little more serious and yeah. you guys headed north. Well, and- we listened when after you left. We I we were worried because you were young, you were full of it, and uh, we didn't need to worry. You knew what you were doing, but it was you were new in the district, so and it bothered me that they had changed that plate to Scott's. It just that Scott was not. He was squared away. He was not going to give up his cruiser. We, I backed my new cruiser out. We turned the radio up, and we listened. And, of course, the next thing's... The, and that's you, Jim, and, and John. Yeah. And the next thing we hear, we hear you <clears throat> talking about where you are and, and that you saw the cruiser. We knew that you had taken the turn, and I kind of figured it was in the Bloomfield area just based on some of the information we were getting on you from you on the radio. And then, I'll never forget it, I could hear you screaming, because what had happened was he'd shot you, he had he had drove under the underpass, pulled into the corner, he knew you were there, he knew you were coming, he jumped out of the truck and ambushed you as you got closer to the uh, uh, underpass, 
And so you had already gone in reverse, screened backwards, taken rounds in the cruiser. You'd already been hit, and you went over the bank into the Connecticut River, and we heard you screaming on the radio that you had been shot. And that's when, for us, the whole scenario changed. Then we knew that this was, you know, it confirmed really some of the fear I had that it was Scotty's cruiser. It confirmed that. I said, this is a serious deal, and and we were off to the races, man, because we didn't know what that was. So, Yeah, um, and... and- you went and got extra firepower. Yeah, well, I ran to the, the truck. Day. I ran to the truck. Those guys were unarmed. They wanted to jump in the truck with me, and we didn't carry rifles like we had five shot deer rifles back then. Yeah, you know, we didn't have assault rifles, and I had a couple of my own. So I went racing back to the house because I'm thinking this guy's coming south. We're going to meet him because I know how we're going to catch up with him. And mm-hmm. uh, so I went to the cruiser. I, it was kind of confusing for a few minutes. Jumped out of the cruiser, ran back in the house, came running out with two guns, uh, threw one at John. We jumped in the cruiser, and we tore off, and uh, we were headed north. And Jim was following you? And- Jim followed us. He was actually, the plan was Jim was going to go to you up at Bloomfield to see what he could do to help you. And we they were, were all in their civilian clothes because yeah. they were heading for the field Yeah, day, nobody so. knew anything. So yeah. we were going to go and try to head the guy off or at least protect Jim so he could get you into an ambulance into the hospital. Little did we know that, you know. And then the reports started coming. We started hearing scattered stuff on the radio that uh, things had happened up north. And, and But we didn't know he had killed anybody at that point. We didn't know that until very late in the day. Hmm. And uh, so we went up. What, and what he did is he came down a road only a mile, thankfully, and pulled off into a dirt road. So he was out of sight. We went by that road he was on, I'll bet, five times that day. You know, I couldn't imagine why we didn't meet him. Because you right. can only get over to Vermont and come south where he shot you. And then down by the Connecticut uh, River, the bridge down below me. In, in, did you guys uh, go all the way to North Stratford and then cross? No, it was funny. We got almost to Grofton. And I heard he was, I heard uh, Dick Marini, who was a liquor inspector who had almost witnessed your shooting, yeah, right screaming that he was headed south on, on that road over in Vermont. I can't remember the route number, but he was headed south on that road. So instantly I thought, well, he's a, he, the, only play, we, the only chance we get to cut him off is to get across the river in Grofton and meet him. So we whipped around, tore up tires and squealing and peeled around the other way, headed south, went past my house, then crossed over into Vermont, 102. Yeah. Was the route. And then we came up 102 at 100 miles an hour, waiting to meet him. Yeah, that's and, the first uh, time I, I, I realized which route you took. Oh, it's yeah. It's kind of weird. And John was had his fingers embedded in my dash. He was mm-hmm. just, and I was, at that moment, I'll never forget it, I was absolutely livid that he had shot you. I was, I was, I don't remember <laughs> ever being so mad in a uniform, in a police uniform my entire career as I was that day. I was just livid. I was going to kill him no matter what happened it was yep. just he had crossed a line and little did i know he crossed way more than a line because he'd killed two other of our friends so yes three others actually so uh we ran all the way north that's when i started we started meeting troopers coming south and and you know people were coming from everywhere because they had the benefit up north they had the benefit of the knowledge of what had already happened up north so you had troopers coming south cars were getting wrecked uh, cruisers were going off the road, you know, every now and then you'd hear a, a trooper come on the radio. I slid off the road and give a location because everybody was driving like madmen trying to cut this guy off in, uh, cause they, some of those guys had the advantage to knowing that he had done all these other things up North. And so I'm here in the fire department and Colebrook down at his house, you know, Dragon, I didn't know at the time it was Dragon, but they're talking about being at this house that's on fire. And, and I remember saying to John, this is, this is a lot bigger than shooting Wayne. This is a whole, we're trying to find out 
because we never hear another thing from you. Nothing. Yeah. Little, you know, we would find out later that they took you out of the cruiser and put you in a private vehicle. So we don't know where you are at this point. Right. So Jim's in a panic. He's calling, saying, you know, I'm here. The cruiser's here, but he's not here. And they had already loaded you, thankfully, a, a private individual had, and taken you up to, was on their way to Colebrook Hospital. And because they couldn't spare, again, we didn't know this, but they couldn't spare an ambulance because they were all up north trying to deal with the, the right. four the homicides up there. Hmm. So. So we knew something bigger was going on, but we didn't know what it was. And it would go on. It would go on for hours. This was like 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It would be 6.30 at night before we got out of the woods down there in Brunswick. So we went into Maidstone, and that's when things started to make sense because I started to meet troopers that I had known since they came on who had these this look. You know, I'll never forget Frank Prue and, and uh, Mikey Doucette standing at the intersection of Maidstone and 102, and I said – where is he? You know, there's no way he could get off this roadway. They said he's taking a side road. He's got to be on one of these side roads. And they're not searching the back roads. They're just, you know, and I said, well, we got to go find him. He's not going to come to us. And so we, and I'm in civilian clothes, so mm. that's a concern. Right. We're worried about that. Cause we and so is John, and he's yeah. still on the passenger side with yeah, you. Yeah, we didn't have uniforms on, so we didn't have time. So, and we're racing down Maidstone. We loaded up, loaded our guns up, put them right beside us, the long guns. And we made a very quick plan that we were going to go down Maidstone Road. And what was scary that day is we were stopping cars trying to get out of there from all the camps down in there and pulling them out at gunpoint. Can you imagine? Got your family driving down the road, leaving camp, and all of a sudden this cruiser slides sideways in front of you and two guys bail out with rifles leveled on you and order you out of the car. And and we did that all through Maidstone. We cleared a bunch of camps. Yep. Uh, you know, you go to a camp, the door would be partway open. You'd kick it open and go in the camp and search. I mean, we violated law after law after when i think about it now i thought in about mid-afternoon i remember thinking i've lost my job i'm over in vermont i let him go he got shot i'm in vermont where we don't have any authority we're pulling people out at gunpoint we're gonna lose our jobs but it didn't matter it really didn't matter at that point because Mm -hmm. we were going to end we wanted this over and uh, then i ran into frank on our way back out of maidstone frank was there and he's the one that when we stopped he came over and he said do you know the extent of what this guy has done. And I said, no, I can't, you know, all I hear is screaming on the radio and yelling and bits and pieces. And then he told us that he had killed Les and Scotty up north. He said, Lord's gone, Philip's gone. And he killed, which were two friends of ours, two troopers. And he killed Vicky. I said, Vicky, I remember saying, Vicky who? He said, Vicky Bunnell. I said, Jesus, Frank, she was right across from the police department. That's where her office was. He said right. he shot her right there. He drove right up there and shot her. You could literally throw a rock from the police department steps and hit him as he was doing that. Mm. And uh, so then it made all kinds of sense. And by then, I think Jim had gotten back to us and said that you had been transported, but that you were critical. You had been transported, but they weren't sure that you were going to make it. I don't know who gave that estimation, but yeah. that's what we were told. So I think I was pretty stable when I left the hospital. <clears throat> you were. But we were under the impression that whole evening until it was after the shooting was over, after we killed him, and got back up to where your shooting was before we found out you were going to be all right. We mm. thought that whole afternoon that you were, you were. I figured by this, by the time we got this guy and got it over with, we were going to hear that they flew you out and that you had passed away. Because so, that's what we were told, you know? Mm-hmm dispatchers were crying on the radios you could hear them you know because they wanted to help and they didn't know how and they were trying to function with all of these people dying around them it was it was i don't know that i could accurately describe how people felt that day but i can tell you i can accurately describe for you how angry i was and that went on the entire day you're when your adrenaline flows for 
10 or 15 minutes. They do all kinds of reports on that, how it affects your body. You ought to give that a shot for like two or three hours. Mm. I'll tell you, I've never had my body been racked so much as it was that day with all of that. So finally, and and you get these sporadic reports. I've seen the cruiser here. I think he's down. They had him in Dalton. They had him in uh, Gilman. They had him, you know, and I'm thinking is the guys weren't thinking about this because he didn't have time to get there. Right. He's here. He's right in this block. And he was the Mm -hmm. whole afternoon. He sat in the woods waiting. So what he ends up doing is he only goes a mile from your shooting scene down into what's called Brunswick Springs, Vermont. And he backs down this two-wheel track little road that goes down to the river. In fact, Eric Stoll used to stock fish in the Connecticut right. River using this. He goes down this long, it's a kind of a curvy road, but then it goes down this long straightaway. There's a little brook on the left, and there's a big high bank on the right that goes up. It's all wooded. He, he goes all the way down there, turns the cruiser around. Why he didn't get stuck is beyond me. Pulls the cruiser up. So he set it up so when you came around the corner of this long straightaway, you'd see the cruiser at the other end. And then he took a flannel shirt that he had been wearing at the shootings, and that was the description we had, was this white and black flannel shirt he was wearing, and he had a beard, whoever the shooter was. Of course, little, we would find out later, after shooting Scotty and Les and Vicky and Dennis Joes in Colebrook, he went to his home in Columbia, shaved his beard, and changed his clothes and put on a bulletproof vest. So he had a bulletproof vest on down in the shooting. Wasn't a stupid man. No, and no. he took that exact shirt. He knew he was smart enough to know we'd put that bulletin out. He took right. that exact shirt and he laid it out on the wheel of the cruiser, and he put the sleeves up on the dash. Mm-hmm. So it looked like someone was laid over, but it didn't look right. Right, it didn't look right, but it looked like someone was laid over. So we got word he had gone down. Someone went. Oh, I know what it was. A constable from that town, a part-time kind of police guy with his kid barely trained, rolls down in there and walks up and sees this cruiser. He doesn't go to it, which probably saved his life. Right. Because we would, you know, later we would find out Carl was up on the hill, Drago was up on the hill waiting for people to come into view so he could shoot him. He was mm-hmm. using it as bait. He leaves there and comes back, and he finds Vermont troopers that are set up down the road because they're tired of searching. They're trying to organize some sort of plan. State, Our state police is there now. This is when things were starting to get a little more organized. It was like, that was like 5 o'clock. So this had been going on. You were long since in, right. in uh, Dartmouth by yep. then. And they told the command staff there that uh, that cruiser was down in that hole, and it looked like he was laying across the dash. Like he had committed suicide, which is right. how a lot of these things end anyway. So that's when they sent a team down in there of uh, John Pfeiffer, Jeff Calder, Scott, uh, Chuck West. Hemsprague. It's, no, not no, yet. No, not yet. No. Okay. And they went down the first time. In fact, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Chuck. It was John Pfeiffer, uh, Jeff Calder, Amos, the sheriff. Right. Okay. Yep. And there was a fourth guy. I can't remember who it was, but it was not Chuck. Chuck was at the command center. They'd set up at the road down below. There. They were the second team to right. go in after. Right. And they went down there and Jeff would tell me later, Jeff Calder, that as they walked right down the road, slowly, they were being careful, you know, and as Jeff came around the corner, he saw a guy up on the hill with jeans on and a and a campaign hat. Wasn't it a Vermont trooper that had a canine a that Vermont alerted? Trooper, that's right. Yep. yep. And the, the canine alerted on and the they hill. Stopped. And yeah. Yep. And Jeff saw this guy and he thought it was a trooper because this guy Drago was wearing Scott's campaign hat mm, again. Yep. And Just like he did for me. That's right. And uh, he had it on. I think when he left Colebrook, he put it on when he left Colebrook. Mm-hmm. 
so he and he could have shot him at that point, but he didn't because he knew they were undercover. They, he knew there were right. police officers there, just like you in plain clothes. Plain clothes, so he doesn't shoot. Well, instead, he gets shot. Mm. Drager spots him at the same time, shoots him. He falls, and he Pfeiffer runs. John Pfeiffer for the Border Patrol runs over to help Jeff. Unknown to him, he's kind of exposed. His back is exposed, and he gets laced. Uh, Carl could see him, so he shoots him. So Pfeiffer goes down. The, the Vermont dog and trooper go running out. The calls start. I was coming out of Maidstone when that all happened. I could hear the screaming again. That it, So I knew he was there. I knew we mm-hmm. had him somewhere. So I'm trying to decipher. We're trying to just, We're only a couple of miles down the road. We're trying to figure out where this is. And I, by this time, the other thing that was the only, there was some, if you could say it, I guess, there were some comical things that happened during the day, but I, and it didn't register at the time, but John Wimsett was scared to death. I had <laughs> scared him to death. Uh, excuse me, Jim Nealon. I had that reverse. Jim Nealon first got in with me. John was going to you. Really? So I've had Jim for two hours now, driving down Maidstone. And so you had Jim Nealon to I start? I had Jim to start, and oh. he he has had enough. He wants out of this truck. He's had yeah. enough of this. And Jim's you know, a smart guy. Yeah, we're skidding around <laughs> sideways. We're you know I'm gonna I'm I'm on a mission to kill this guy, and he is Jim has had enough. So we meet John on. 102 with Jim's truck. So we pull over. Jim says, well, I'm going to go to Colebrook Hospital where Wayne is. And John says, well, I'm not leaving Kevin alone. I'll jump in with him. Well, John jumps in with me in Vermont just before we go to this final shooting scene, uh-huh. which I'm sure he'd like to have that day back. <laughs> mm. But he jumps in with me, and, and uh, John being John wants to put, it, put together a plan of some sort. Well, I got a plan. <laughs> and, I, and I told him what the plan was. I said, if we meet the cruiser, we meet 608, that's the cruiser. I said, we're going to run into it head on. I'm going to ram it head on because I've got a Chevy truck. So we're going to hit it head on. I don't care what you got to do, but you crawl out with your rifle and you kill the guy driving it. That's mm. that's what we're going to do. This guy's killed five people, I thought at the time. Right. And I said, he's not going to give up. So that's what we're going to do. And he said, and I'll never forget the look <laughs> on his face. And he said, you know, I really think that we ought to, we ought to make a plan and agree on it together, you know, before <laughs> we do it. I said, that's the plan. Your options are stay in the truck or get out, but that's the plan. That's what we're going to do. And 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 uh, you know, and, and working with all these these years, Kevin, I can totally see this happening. Oh, I was living. I was living. <laughs> when you're focused, there's nothing changing. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he, John, was like, oh, oh, you know, and I'll give him credit. He did not. He was going to yep. stay. He was not going to leave you alone. And and I'll tell you, Wayne, I won't I won't mention who it was, but I that kind of day made me understand the psyche of cops because I saw cops that police that I had known my entire career that I would have wanted in any battle. I would have said, those are the guys I would want to go in with who were terrified and could do nothing. Mm. They just, because this incident, if you engage this guy, you were going to have to kill him. Right. And there were guys not ready. Or be killed. There were guys not ready to do that. Mm -hmm. And, And it really opened my eyes. Some of the guys I thought would not be there when you needed them were. Mm-hmm. And uh, and three in particular guys that I thought would be leading the charge wanted nothing to do with this. Nothing. Mm-hmm. It was kind of scary. Yeah, it was an eye opener for me that I would reflect on later on in years, looking at new police officers, thinking, "Are you going to be one of those guys that stands on the edge of the road? Or are you going to mm-hmm. be one of those guys that follows me into the woods?" Absolutely. And it was uh, it was a it was a test. The the other good thing that came out of it, if there was a thing, it was a test. I, to this day, feel very comfortable that when these kinds of things happen, I know how I'm going to react. I don't have to guess at it because I did it. So it's, that's comforting to know right. that. It takes away any question. Will I? Because every police officer, I think, 
thinks about when it comes time to pull that trigger, am I going to be able to do that? And I think about that with these school shootings too. What kind of person as a police officer is that's a cushy job, but some type people see, but yeah, the guy that's going to have to run to those gunfires to, to save those kids needs that kind of person. And you get, you get in those school shootings, you know, I listen to those and you'll get these reports later on as they analyze them where a guy didn't respond because the same thing happened same to thing that happens. guy that I saw with my own eyes that day. It's uh, you can't, you can train a guy, you can polygraph a guy, you can do the psychological test. He'll, you can have a guy say all the right things, but when that fight or flight comes, mm. they're either going to jump in or jump out. And yep. you don't know that. I'm convinced. You don't know that because I saw it until it happens. Yeah. And, and I took great comfort in that. Every day of my I was more confident from that day on because of that, because I know what I'm going to do. And mm-hmm. that takes away that doubt, you know? Right. So anyway, we, John settled down. We stopped a few cars and pulled him out. He was beside himself, I remember. And then he kind of got into the mode. He was doing the same thing. And then we heard the screaming down in, in Brunswick. So we raced out of there, went to Brunswick. Uh, at that time, so you got Jeff Calder down there and John Pfeiffer laying on the ground trying to get out of there. Right. They're screaming. Mm-hmm. His, his uh, screaming, he was hitting the lungs and he was having trouble breathing. He's holding a handgun waiting for this guy to come down the bank. But he didn't want to come down the bank. And he that, was, that was John. That did John that, right. Pfeiffer. Yeah, John Pfeiffer. He was using, Carl Drago was using them as bait because he knew we'd come right. after those guys. So he figured he's hiding behind a big bull pine, up, just like a deer hunt. That's all right. I could think of. He's sitting on a in a stand and he's waiting for guys to come into the opening so he, he can shoot them. That's when Chuck West, Sammy Sprague, and Amos... Uh, who was the sheriff, and uh, who else went down? Another another border patrol, border patrol agent. They were all at at uh, Amos's cruiser, little Ford. I think it was a Ford or Chevy, small Explorer type cruiser. Back down in there, they had just brought Jeff Calder out on a litter. Jeff had started to crawl out on his own, so they could get to him and threw him on a litter and brought him out. And it was good because he gave us the intel that we needed, roughly on where the guy was. And he said he's up on the bank. And that's what changed my plan that day. I heard him as, he, as they were sliding him in the cruiser, and he said, Kevy's up on the bank. He's not in the road. He's up on the bank waiting for you guys to come down the road. So our plan changed because of that information. Jeff probably saved lives that day doing mm-hmm. that. And the plan was the guys would use the cruiser because we knew we were going to have to carry uh, John Pfeiffer out. So we used the cruiser to back down in there for cover, and we decided to send a team up in the woods. Our goal was to engage him, Drager, to keep him busy so they could slide in there, grab Pfeiffer, and come out. So two Vermont troopers show up who would later that were detectives that had white shirts on, both of them. And mm. they got their vest on in these bright white shirts. And I said, the worst thing to have in the woods. You got to change your shirt, man. You got to put something over you. And the guy's like, I never thought of that. So we're screaming to other people. People are pulling out clothes out of their cruisers, whatever they have. To, and this guy was a brute. He was a big guy. His arm was huge. I Couldn't remember. find anything to fit him, could you? No, they no. finally got something to cover up his white shirt. And thanks, man. I remember it like it was yesterday. Slapped me on the back, and away we went. And we split up four abreast walking through the woods, you know, taking a step. And I, I, that was the scariest moment of the day. That was at, uh, would have been around 5 or 5.30 at night. It was near the end. And mm. uh, every squirrel that moved, you know, one of us would move, the other three would cover. Then everybody would catch up to that first guy. Then And we kept doing that, one, one, one. And when, when it was your turn to move, it was scary because you, right. you were getting, and we got within 51 feet of him. Mm. We were going to walk right onto him. And not a sound in there. And then I remember hearing something down on my left, and I looked down, I could see here comes the cruiser. I could look down on it as it's coming up the road, backing up the road, and these guys walking on either side of it. and all uh, Actually, all on one side of it. 
and uh, they got right up to where Pfeiffer was. The right, I could see, I couldn't see Pfeiffer, but I could hear him. And uh, they they backed right up fairly close to them, and then they stopped. So I we stopped. So you were hearing pretty much everything Drago was. We were hearing so, everything he was, and probably seeing everything he was. That's as right. Well. And he can see them. We now know he's mm-hmm. waiting for them to come around the back of that cruiser so he can take a pop shot at him, and and uh, which was his undoing. So. But we don't know he's 50 feet in front of us. You know, right. We don't have any idea. There's helicopters flying over. Because and this is uh, woods. You can't. Oh, this is you know, thick. It's this thick. Is, oh, yeah. It's, it, was, yeah. It, was, it was like going after a It's not a being 51 bear. feet in front of somebody in a clear opening. Oh, it's, no. It's thick. It's heavy. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, every time a squirrel would go, you'd whirl. You know, I don't know why we didn't shoot a bunch of squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched them quietly go around. I could see them bend over. I saw a rifle get leaned up against the cruiser. I could see him bend over. And I remember thinking at that exact second, they're going to be able to get him and get him out of here. The guy must be gone. And just as they lift him, the shot, a shot rings out. And it wasn't any of them. So they drop him, they scatter, and then the gunfire started. And let me tell you, there were 98, I think they said later it would be 98 shots that were fired. And they were firing indiscriminately all up where we were. They had no idea we were up there. So the minute the gunfire started, we just dropped to the ground, and rounds went into trees. I mean, you could hear those rounds zipping by you all through there. There was a guy under the cruiser, and I could see the muzzle blast of the gun pointed up towards us every time it went off. We would later find out that was Amos with a 12-gauge firing up in there. I was absolutely convinced my own guys were going to kill us. You Mm. couldn't yell. You couldn't hear anything. You know, the guns were going off. And it just seemed like it went on. I'm sure it didn't, but it seemed like forever. And then silence, absolute silence. It was odd that it was so silent and, and nobody's moving. And I just start, to, I'm laying flat on the ground and I just start to pick my head up a little bit and I can see them kind of organizing at the back of the cruiser again. And then I see him come out again. To the, and I'm thinking, what, what are you thinking? He's going to mm. do the same. What we didn't know is he's already, we've already killed him. He's already dead. We didn't know that. And they didn't know that either. They did not. And so no. they grabbed Pfeiffer. The door, I see a guy come out from under the cruiser where I saw the muzzle blast. I could see it was Amos, so I knew it was him. And I'm thinking, I can't believe I just survived that and didn't get hit. The cruiser door, the back door comes open. They literally threw John in there. I'll never forget the sound of him hitting that, you know, the groan and the the big rush of air coming out. They threw him in this thing, slammed the door down, and then Amos got in the truck, and they're pulling this thing out, and he's going right along because he wants out of there. And they're yelling at him to slow down because they're racing off, and they're trying to use the truck as cover. Mm. You know, slow down. We're trying to stay with you. And they're right. all, And then, again, it's silent, and everybody's gone. And it's just us in there. So now what do you do? Yeah. You know, I don't know whether we should get up and move. I don't know if we should. So we lay there, and we lay there, and we lay there. And the helicopters come over, and we're just watching. You know he's up in front of you, so you're just watching. You know, why isn't he shooting? Why didn't he shoot that second time? And finally, I see a trooper coming down. I could see he doesn't have his Stetson on, but I can see his shirt carrying a rifle. And then I see another troop. They're coming back to get us. It had been Mm -hmm. quite a few minutes. They're coming back to get us or to help us. So I start to inch up. We start to get up on our feet at that point. There hasn't been any gunfire now for 10 minutes. And, and your you mind probably is, using trees for cover. And your and, mind is racing. Yeah. You're thinking of everything. You're thinking of, am I ever going to see my kids? Uh, why did I go down in here? Is Wayne alive? How many other people died that you don't know about yet? You know, your mm-hmm. mind is just racing. You're shaking. You know, you don't remember. I don't remember loading, <clears throat> loading guns. You don't remember any of that stuff. You just function like you were trained. That's, right. There's a lot of truth to that. Then I heard a trooper yell, 
he's on, uh, there's a, another guy on his back. He's killed another trooper. And I'm thinking, no, he didn't. He didn't kill a trooper. The, I saw all the troopers. I got out of here. He didn't kill a trooper. And I'm thinking, that's him. Mm. And I yelled that out. I said, it's, it's him. No, I can see a Stetson. I said, he had a Stetson on earlier. I said, I, I'll bet it's him. So they go up. I said, where is he? And he says, he's right in front of you because I could hear our voice. You know, we uh-huh. said we can see him laying on his back right in front of you. So we started down. And I got to tell you, Wayne, I didn't go. It was frightening. I didn't go. It seemed like three steps. It was more than that. But all of a sudden, I could see his feet. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, no wonder that thing was loud. I was right in front of him, you know, wow. right in front of him. And uh, and it was him. It was clearly him. And then I recognized him. Then I knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a vest on, and he, he had been shot right center mass in the throat and right up in his in his jaw. The hat had blown off, laid over. His rifle laid at the ground. And I remember Sam Sprague. I looked up, and Sam Sprague was coming back down. He was as rattled as I've ever seen anyone. And about this time, the SWAT team arrives. When it's all over, the SWAT team gets there because they mm-hmm. held those guys off. And so they're down in there trying to organize things, and they're yelling to grab him, and I was having nothing to do with that. I went down to the road. I, John came down behind me, and I grabbed Sam, and Sam, and Sam couldn't talk. He was just he was shaking because he had been on that team to go get John. He was really rattled. His cross pens were gone, so I started looking on the ground. I found them. I gave him back his pens, huh. and I found a magazine of his handgun. I gave that back to him. His gun was half holstered. His clip was almost out. You know, he was just completely undone. Yeah. So we put him back together quickly because it was kind of embarrassing. We put him back together. Yeah. And and that's what happens in a shooting. You know, you right. lose all. And then they said, we got to carry him out. I said to Sam, we're not carrying that bastard out. He's going to lay here and be coyote bait. I will have <laughs> nothing to do with him. And no one from New Hampshire will. And out we went. I was not going to touch him. And we, yeah. ne- we never did. We walked out of there. Went up to the guardrail and of course the whole world is coming now it's over yeah. but the whole world is coming and i'm parked right up i wedged my cruiser right up to the guardrail marked the cruiser up i laid the fender right on the guardrail up there when i landed and i smoked that. i never knew that oh yeah i drove it's a brand new cruiser I had 12 miles on it and i drove it right into the guardrail didn't even remember doing it uh-huh. trying to get it off the road and i looked and it's right on the guardrail uh-huh. i remember uh, john saying you know you gotta you're gonna have to do a paperwork on that i said i don't think we have to worry about that i think we're all going to be unemployed and i can hear our director on the radio at the time who was a who was wayne vetta who was a conservation officer before becoming a director my son-in-law now was a police officer in carroll and he said the director went through the intersection in twin mountain at 100 miles an hour or better trying to get up there and he was up at Wayne's, and so, Eric so he figured out that flight or flight thing with with him. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah. And Eric stole. He had him. What I didn't know is it was like three lieutenants up at your scene trying to secure that, and uh, they were caught. We didn't bring any radios, of course, in this mess. So they were feverishly calling us. They thought we'd been killed down in there because they they obviously heard the gunfire, mm. and they couldn't get anybody on the radio. And I got back up to the cruiser, and all I wanted was a cigarette. So I'm diving through my cruiser through all the mayhem, the stuff that went flying all over the place to find that pack of cigarettes, which I find in the lighter. And then I hear Eric calling on two, calling my number. So I answered him, and I'll never forget the the, the uh, sound in his voice when he knew that we were all all out and okay. You know, mm-hmm. he was pretty excited about that. And he said, just put your stuff in the truck and come up here. He said, we're up at, at uh, Bloomfield. I said, okay, we'll be right up. So I, I remember having that cigarette in my mouth and lighting the Bic lighter. There was a Bic lighter, and I couldn't get my hand 
lined up with that lighter to light that cigarette I was shaking so badly by then. Now, you know, the, the adrenaline's over, the, the rush is over, and now your body's starting to react to yeah. all of that. I would later learn. I didn't know anything about it then. And then Sprague, who's never smoked a cigarette in his life, decides at that moment he wants one. <laughs> so I, it must have been funny to watch. I give him one. I'm shaking. He's shaking. And we're both trying. I'm, I got a big lighter, and I'm trying to hold it in both hands to shaking feverishly, trying to light his cigarette. And, and, uh, it was just, and it was at that moment that I looked around, Wayne, and it was amazing. The cruisers, all of that road from Brunswick Springs, which would be about, I think it was almost two miles, back up to where you were shoot, you, your shooting took place. Mm-hmm. Both sides of the roads were lined with cruisers. They were cruisers from Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Police standards and training had a some kind of big training event, and I was told it emptied out, and they all came north. Wow! There was cruiser after cruiser after cruiser that came north for that for that whole event because it went on for so long, and it was like running. You were running in the middle of the road to go back up there at a slow speed. We had all the guns all crossed over in my truck, all loaded, off safe, so why don't we kill each other driving up? We just threw them in the truck and drove up there, and we were just I was just amazed driving up the road, looking around, the guys I knew all crying, standing on the side of the road with their heads down crying. It was just, it was like a, a, a funeral march back up to Bloomfield. I get up there, and it was a sea of green. The director's there, Hewitt is there, Lieutenant Hewitt, Lieutenant uh stole is there estes is there and they are just there's evidence tents at the at the uh, uh overpass with the round casings when he was firing at you ejected mm-hmm. they marked all of that there were pictures and just like you see in the movies the chalk drawing where the cruiser they thought the right. cruiser had been and and we get up there and eric comes over and the first thing he i say to him i said you know what, what's the, we want to know what the status is with wayne he said wayne's going to be fine He's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I said, really? He said, oh, yeah. He, he said they made him stable when they, you know, he's got a long road, but he's going to be fine. He's going to be okay. And, and, uh, and then he looks. He can, you know, so we get out of the truck, and he hugs me. He gives me a big hug, and he looks in the cruiser. He can see these guns in all different, you know, shapes. And he says, are these unloaded? I said, I, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think they are. <laughs> so he's, you know, instead of embarrassing us, he just goes in and quietly makes them all safe, which was kind of, there was a lot of that stuff that happened that day. That right. It was kind of neat. And uh, so they had locked that scene up. State police came there. And then they had a little meeting of their own, they being the lieutenants and the director. And, you know, looking back on that now, I know what they, I know what they were doing. They were trying to figure out what to do with us. Right. And uh, so they made a plan which was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And and so the plan was each one of those lieutenants was going to get in with one of us. So we were not going to be together because you had to be separated to right. get the whole story, but each one was going to be with one of us and drive us back down to region one. And that's kind of, but it, they made it feel like it was a natural thing. Mm-hmm. I had no idea they were separating us until much later. And they kind of got in the truck. They didn't talk to us about the shooting, really. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to get us on tape. Right. They just said things like, you know, are you sure you're not hurt? Are you sure you didn't cut anything? Uh, did you hit anybody? You know, did you threaten anybody? And did you crease your fender on your cruiser? Yeah, and how did you ding your front <laughs> fender? So I told him. He said, I don't care. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. And I said, you know, I'm expecting we're going to lose our jobs, Eric. And he was just shocked by that, you know. Why would you lose your job? I said, because we're over here in Vermont. We've been involved with killing this guy we don't have authority for vermont and that would be all the things they would have to sort out the ags would have to sort out in the days to come yeah uh they had to unknown to us they had to collect guns the two guns we had that i had that day i'd never qualified with so they never had any 
any right. uh, uh, paperwork on those. So that was going to be a problem. And, and it was just, it was the, the days that followed that were pretty bizarre. And I, none of us really cared. You know, mm. they'd call and say, hey, you got to bring your rifle down to 401. I'd say, okay, throw it in a truck and bring it down to 401. I didn't really care. It right. didn't matter. You know, you were numb from all of this. And then we started hearing the whole story. Of, by that night, I heard the whole story of how, the, how he had killed Scott killed actually uh just ambushed these people ambushed less then drove down to vicky's how he killed vicky and how dennis tried to stop him who right. really if you talk i've said this many many times you talk about a hero dennis joe's was, dennis a, real joe's hero. was a hero unarmed guy took on a guy twice his size because he just couldn't stand watching him shoot his friend yeah. you know he was shooting vicky and he couldn't take it no nope. had he not done anything Dennis Joes would be alive today, mm-hmm. but he attacked the guy, knocked him over. He had no chance of winning that fight. And and Drager said, "You should have." He uh, the one quote that that people heard Drager say that day. The one thing they heard him say was, "You should have stayed the fuck out of this." And, mm-hmm. and just before he shot him uh, four times in the chest at point blank range, yeah. And and then got in his cruiser and drove away and drove down to start his house on fire. And and so Eric was questioning me because. And I didn't know it at the time. I would later learn it, why he was doing that. He was questioning me about whether this guy had a beard or not. He said, did you see him? I said, yeah, I saw him. I walked over to him, spit on him. He said, did he have a, did he have a beard? I said, no, he didn't have a beard. Are you sure it was Carl Dragon? He shows me a picture of Carl, a licensed picture that they had put out to guys. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, that's him. Well, he had a beard. He said, I got multiple, we got multiple reports he had a beard. We would, again, we would later find out right. he shaved his beard. So I said, I don't know about, I remember getting aggravated. I said, I don't know about the beard. The guy didn't have a beard. Yeah. He was clean shaven when I saw him. That's all I can tell you. This on is on his way down. He stopped he at his shaved. house to he shave He was it. smart enough to know that's what they'd be looking for, and he changed his whole appearance, you know? Yeah. He was a killer. Cool, he tested his own vest, I would later find out in a report. He'd fight around in his own vest to make sure it would stop around. It was out of his Ruger. He had a Ruger in his back uh pants tucked in his pants he had that uh, ar-15 and he had a handgun a ruger nine millimeter i think tucked in his pants and they found a nine millimeter round in his vest because he test fired his own vest he bought that was a police vest he bought online out of florida it was an expired vest that a police department sold and he bought it online Hmm. and tested it prior to that because he used to shoot in his backyard and he put that on that day he must have had that stuff already and then when he snapped, he just remembered it, went home, lit the house on fire. We're pretty convinced he had an ambush there. He was going to go around. We think you stopped that. He was going to go around to the height of land in Vermont where he could look down on his home. He had started his house on fire. And when those guys stopped to put the fire out, he'd shoot on them. And we think you screwed that up because mm. you met him over there and sent him in the opposite direction. So he couldn't do that. But they let his house burn. The fire department was smart enough that day to not go down that driveway. They just stood at the end of the road and let it go. Right. And uh, and that was a good decision on their part because the garage was booby-trapped. They would later burn that and have the bomb squad come out, and there was all kinds of stuff found in that. So it it just went on for days, and we went back, had to be debriefed that night. So I think it was like 9.30, quarter of 10 that night. We knew you were going to be okay. And how'd that go, Kevin? I mean, that was did weird. You all meet back. We did. He took us in separate rooms. It was pretty well organized for guys that were. Now was know, that Lieutenant Stoll that did that? Yeah, yeah. Lieutenant Stoll and Estes and Hewitt took. Uh, Hewitt took John Wimsack because he was John's lieutenant. Yeah. For some reason, I ended up with Rick Estes, which made us best friends to this very day because of that one night. Quite mm-hmm. frankly, uh, Eric, I think was was running the show. 
the captain was on his way up. Jeff Gray hadn't gotten there yet. The director was there, but he was getting calls from the Vermont AG's office. Right. Uh, trying to nail down as many details as they could. So Eric kind of ran the show. He, I remember he sent someone down to McDonald's. There was a big pile of McDonald's in the conference room when I got out of my McDonald's stuff, when I got out of my conference. Of course, eating was the last thing you wanted. My right. stomach was rolling. I vomited when I got back at Region 1, which I couldn't understand why I would be sick. I mean, mm. I was standing in the office. I was covered with sweat. We were in these these uh, civilian clothes, and all of a sudden, I got vi- I got really sick to my stomach, and, I, and we think it was because I drank so much water coming south, ran to the men's room and threw up, and I thought, you know, I'd never do that. What, what's mm. that? Am I pregnant? What's that all about, <laughs> you know? But it was the, you know, as you know, because we yeah. went through it together later, counseling, it was that was all the effects of that adrenaline. Right. It was bizarre. So then they came in, and then he turned the tape on, um, and started asking me questions, very similar to what you and I are doing right now. And mm-hmm. he just let me go. And I said some things then that I wish I had that day back. I probably wouldn't have said on tape things like I was going to kill him. I didn't care if he gave up. I was, he killed my friends. He was going to die. You know, things that you probably wouldn't have said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had your wits about you, but it was honest. Yeah, it was honest. And, uh, you know, we talked about, I remember Rick had a pretty good handle on how the days following this would be. So he's prepping me for that. You know, some of the press is going to defend this guy, which they didn't really do, but there were some who did. Right. Uh, you to come later. Certainly you got these funerals did. coming. These funerals mm-hmm. are going to come. And right. of course we weren't going to miss that. And, uh, and then some really, uh, I remember in the days that followed some really bizarre stuff happened. Uh, the next day, they made a plan that night. The next day, we were all going to come back to Region 1. They didn't want us out because they couldn't make up their mind if they wanted to put us off duty, which they probably should have done. Mm-hmm. We would do that now. Back then, we didn't know. But we didn't. they didn't want us out working, which was a good plan because right. who knows what we would have done. Yeah. So they brought us back to Region 1. When we got there, and they said to us, well, what, what do you guys want to do? I'll never forget it. And Mike Moody and I were standing there, and I said, I, I want to go to Dartmouth. I want to go, I want to go down and see Wayne. And Moody, I remember Moody saying, that's a great idea. I want to do that too. <laughs> so then Eric says, you can see Eric thinking about this, you know, and he goes in and he calls the director. Next thing I know, he's a, he says to me, he says, go out, come on out. We're going to clean out my Tahoe. We cleaned the Tahoe out. We put the whole district in that truck. And that was the quietest ride to Dartmouth I have ever had. Mm-hmm. Eric tried all the way down and make jokes. We're going through Littleton. There was a cute girl that came out of a story. Said, "Look at that fellow." We weren't we weren't interested in anything. You right. know, he was just trying to. I felt so bad for him. He was just trying to lighten the load. And remember, we all showed up at your place mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> down at the hospital room there. And your mom was there, and and I remember going in. Your arm was all you were all cocked up, and I you know, all drugged up. Oh, hoses <laughs> everywhere, and I'm like, I, I don't care if he doesn't know it. At least we're here, and oh. there was a lot of people there. There were quite mm-hmm. a few people there, and we didn't stay very long. But we wanted. Uh, you know, looking back on it, I think we wanted to see, we were told by many people that you're all right, but you're not all right till we see it. Right. We wanted to see that. And, uh, and I remember thinking, yeah, he'll be out a long time, but he's going to make it. He's going to be okay. You know? So, cause a few of us felt like we let you down by letting you go like that. We should have been with you and, and, uh, should, you know, we shouldn't have let you go by yourself. So that helped that feeling, you know, mm-hmm. kind of that we knew you were going to be okay and you'd be back home and, <laughs> And then the funerals came. This is the last funny part. Um, and it wasn't funny, but I remember it again and always will. The funeral came, and Eric, I said to Eric, I said, well, Wayne's going to want to go to these funerals because he knows. Oh, he can't come to the funerals. He's not coming to the funerals. I said, 
I'm telling you, <laughs> he wants to go to the funerals. You've got to let him go to the funerals. This is going to have a very bad effect on Now, you know, I'm still screwed up, but I'm worried about somebody else. I said he's going to have a very – you know, you lived with Scott Phillips and Les Lloyd. You were up there all the time. And, and very, I, and, very good friend. Yeah, and I said he's going to – he needs to go to that, uh, Eric. This was – and we were moving on to three or four days, five days after the shooting. So they right. had you pretty well stabled. I was hearing mm-hmm. all kinds of good things. Couldn't wear a uniform, but I knew – so – then they made the decision, and this is like the only time after the shooting that I got angry, that an officer down there, a lieutenant down there, was going to pick you up and bring <laughs> you to that funeral, and I exploded. He was the chief of firearms at the time, the lieutenant, and I just thought he's going to do nothing but interrogate that kid all the way up to this funeral, and that isn't appropriate. And I went to Eric, and I said, I, I want to go get him and bring him up he said no you can't you can't we're not gonna let you do that you can't drive down there and pick him up. i'm not gonna let you do it. i said you're gonna let me do that or you're gonna be looking for a game warden because i will quit <laughs> i said he is not riding up with that lieutenant and i remember i wasn't making much headway until i said to eric and you know eric so this will make sense to you i said to him wayne's a district one warden and district one should go get him and bring him back and that clicked yeah i could see it no and doubt. i said to myself at that second, I said, I just won that argument. I could see that look in his face. He's like, I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> so he said, you can do it, but you take your – I don't know why. He says, you take your wife with you. I don't know why he did that. Mm. I, I don't know if he thought I, we'd be a loose cannon, the two of us, or what. So yeah. I said, w- whatever. So we left that morning to come get you. We got down there. I remember your mom was mad. She didn't want you to go yeah, and because uh, she was being a mom, and she didn't want you really. And you were adamant about going. Oh, I was. Had to help shave you, and we got you in that red <laughs> coat. And we were late getting you up there. We put you in that Chevy truck, and we, we brought you up um, the Vermont side, I think, because we were rocking it up. They were holding that funeral up for you. They huh. wanted you to get there. They were holding up the procession. So I'm trying to get you there, and I'm getting paged as I'm going up. They're, they're wondering, was it paged or radio? I guess it was radio. They're wondering where we were. Remember that? Yep. We hit New Hampshire and Lancaster. We came into Lancaster, and I remember going on the air and signing you on. I don't even know why I did that. And and uh, I just said 17 is back in District 1, and he's 1079, and that triggered the dispatchers uh, a and whole everybody response, on, statewide response, yeah. brought us to tears. Remember, yeah, well, everybody, I'll everybody saying it. hi. It was, it was pretty good. Marty was rattled by that. All the guys up the funeral heard that, and yeah. uh, that was that was quite a moment. And it we, was. we got you up and got you through those funerals. So you were in agony, but it, but you were there. So and those funerals yeah. were like something I've never seen. So yeah, and then was, within a week of that. Well, less we had a, we lost another officer in New Hampshire, Jeremy Sharon, who was at that funeral that day. He went back home, and two days later was working a night shift and approached a couple of guys down in Epsom, a place I would later know because I patrolled down there at the end of my career, and uh, walked up to the car and they shot and killed him. So, and some of the guys that were involved in this shooting ended up working to capture him up in Franconia. So we lost a lot of guys in that one in a summer. short, short period yep, of time. We did. No doubt. Yep. Yeah. And at some point I'd like to talk about, you know, the critical incident stuff that we went through after. Yeah. Because I mean, that, that became so important later in our careers to help others and oh, to go yeah. through the training and still stuff do. like that. We still so. do. Yeah. It's amazing how much history we have together, Colonel, you know, and <laughs> yeah. how much we do have to talk about and, you know, the and, department, and share. When you look back on the department now in my position as the colonel, you know, when I think of what that colonel went through, think about all of the stuff going on that he was responsible for. I right. feel really bad for him. And didn't they do it right? They did 
an awesome job. They had no training in it, quite frankly. Now we have. Now right. we have set policies. All you got to do is open a book and read. Right. But back then, those guys were shooting from the hip. And God bless them, they did it right. They, You know, it was a couple of missteps, but not yeah, many. But they blazed the trail for what we have they, today. They did. They laid it out, and they, they immediately recognized from that event how important it was to get that training. Absolutely. To provide people for that training, and we got it, and uh, we ran with it from that day. I don't know how many people we've helped since that right. day. still do. And that was so, just on the, the cusp of, you know, understanding what counseling does for you, too. Right, right. And I'll never forget Colonel Alley saying, Yep, you know, you got to go to counseling. Yeah. I'm like, is that an order? No, it's not an order, but it's a very strong suggestion. Because <laughs> yeah. it couldn't order want, you. Do you want to be in order? And I'm like, no, sir, I get it. Yeah. And, I, and I was so resistant to that at the time. So was I. You know? Because yeah, it was a sign of weakness. Yeah, and I cleared that door, and it was a woman. You know, I yep. knew it was a woman. I'm like, I ain't, can't tell her a thing. No, nope, she won't understand. five minutes into it, I spilled my guts like there was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Paula Booth, a great, great lady. And yep. uh, certainly, so. uh, my, my last day, I made sure I called her and thanked her for a great career. So. Yeah, because yeah, you wouldn't have had a career. No. No, I wouldn't know her. No. And the thing that, you know, that, that was a big shift in law enforcement culture because you viewed it back then as a weakness. Right. Today, you view it, if people don't take advantage of it, it's it's a stupidity. It's it is. It's a big mistake. It is. So, because you don't want guys out there sucking it up, saying they're okay, because no one's okay after something. Now, that, like that. You pressure can't builds okay. up inside. Yeah, and you're just going to, you're going to explode when the time is wrong to do that. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it was... Uh, we learned a lot from that. There was a there was a lot of, and things would change. You know, they tried to improve the radio system, which they're still struggling <laughs> with to this day. But equipment wise, I'll never forget the executive director Wayne Vetter took me in the office at the end of that interview that night after I'd eaten, everything was done. He took me in the office and he said to me, "I want you to forget for a moment that I'm the executive director, if you can do that." And I didn't know Wayne very well. Again, today we're, we're very good friends. But he said, "I want you to forget for a minute I'm the boss." And I want you to tell me, and he had a notepad and a pen. He said, I want you to tell me what you didn't have today that you needed. And Wayne, I rattled it off. I said, we need vests. The day has come. These guys have got to have vests. We can't carry a five-shot deer rifle anymore, Wayne. Those are mm -hmm. useless. Five shots, we've got to have something better. So we've got to have a better radio system. And if you stop and think of everything we have today, all of that changed. It did. He wrote all of that down, and he and he started that change. And we got vests, we got uh, different rifles, we and we've come a ways from there even. But it changed immediately. We got new door seals because mm -hmm. they didn't want us to be confused with biologists. That right. that went back the other way. Went but for a while, way. it was like that. All because of that day. All because of a list that I gave. I'd love to have that day back. I would have said we need more pay. <laughs> we need longer vacations, you know. But I just laid it out. He was asking an honest question, and I was trying to give him an honest answer, remembering right. what I needed that day, and he paid attention to that. And, yeah. uh, again, uh, you know, I hope... I hope, as a colonel, I never have to live through an event like that. I don't ever want to lose an officer or have an officer injured. But I only, I've, I've said it many, many times and prayed for it many, many times, that I have one ounce of the God-given sense that those guys had and do the same thing for, for my guys that they did for us because we wouldn't have made it without it. Right. You know, you'd have lost five or six really good game wardens yep. if they hadn't done that right that day. No, I and, have uh, so much respect for those guys oh, yeah. going through that. And they didn't have a clue. Yep. They were shooting right from the hip. And did and, a heck of a job. did a heck of a job. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No, great. Yeah. No, thanks for taking the time and uh, talking about it because uh, I learned things today, to be honest with you, and it's like a big yeah. puzzle because I only have my story. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah. No and guys are still, to this day, sensitive 
about talking to you about it. It's kind of absolutely. Funny. You, know, I, we, I, you and I make jokes about it, and uh, they they were. I remember I made a joke about uh, how what a lousy shot he was because you made it, and one of the guys who heard that was was just shocked by that. He would he would tell me later, I can't believe you said that to him, <laughs> and I said he's okay with this. You can, That's right. but it's just it creates this whole persona that guys think they can't cross over into right. it it's kind of weird and to be you know? honest with you i like to talk about it because it, it helps relieve that pressure that still makes you feel normal today. makes exactly. you feel normal but they i guess until you go through that you don't get that right you don't get it and sometimes learn from it too yeah, you know you newer guys that come on that I, I forget who doesn't know the ins and the outs oh yeah and yeah yeah so trainees that i showed them where i get shot so, oh, yeah. and uh, how you how you survived it right knowing enough to put it lay down across the seat and put it in it put it in reverse and getting out of there because you'd be dead yes would have killed you so, yeah no doubt about yeah, that, that so well great colonel thank you so much no I problem appreciate it Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.